0: Welcome to Abstract, the future of science. I'm your host, Jeremy Ullman, and today, as always, we are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research. We recorded in the past, you're listening in the present, and we're discussing the future of science. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to Abstract. Our guest today is a curious, developing, committed, and highly motivated observer, thinker, and listener. He is the one, the only, Zachariah Berry. Zach, welcome to the show. How's it going?
1: It's going great, Jeremy. Thanks so much for having me. It's an
0: absolute pleasure to have you. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it very much. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to myself and to the listeners. Who are you? How did you
1: get to where you are? Of course. So my name is Zachariah Berry. You can, of course, call me Zach. That's that's what I go by. I'm a rising fourth-year PhD student at Cornell University, where I study organizational behavior. My research right now is broadly on morality and identity, and I'm currently doing a lot of work primarily on questions related to loyalty and passion for work. So on the loyalty side, I'm studying when it is or is not okay to break one's loyalty-based obligations and how people navigate competing loyalties, as well as whether or not loyalty obligations extend beyond one's direct ties. And on the passion for work side, um, I'm exploring both the psychology of giving up and quitting, as well as how people navigate their passion for work and their non-work passions. Outside of my academic interests, I'm super passionate about scuba diving and fitness. Amazing. You've got a
0: very well-rounded life about you. That's right. <laughs> Congratulations. You can just add this one to your CV, this uh, this podcast <laughs> here. So we're going to hop right into it because we have so many topics to discuss today my first question, related to a paper you published recently on loyalty. In the title, you refer to loyalty as a double edged sword. Why do you call loyalty a double edged sword?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So the paper is, is about how loyalty can lead to both good and, and bad outcomes. So in the literature, especially in the moral psychology literature, loyalty is considered a really important part of, of what it means to be a moral person. It's it's also an important aspect of how we evaluate someone else's moral character. We, we look to see how loyal they are as an individual. But there's also been um, some growing work on how loyalty can blind people to the ethical consequences of their behavior. And so it, it justifies um, unethical behavior in, in many different circumstances. And so the goal of this paper um, with my collaborators was to explore what are the sort of mechanisms underlying when loyalty leads to both good and and bad outcomes, um, like, like existing work suggests.
0: So let's dive into what some of those different outcomes are and how we get there. How... When is loyalty something that leads to positive outcomes? And when is it leveraged for bad or evil?
1: Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. Um, And I think there's a lot of nuance and complexity around the answer here. But um, very broadly speaking, um, loyalty operates... In such a way where people have obligations to the sort of objects of their loyalty, whether it be other people. So we often think of loyalty as as bound between two individuals. So my loyalty to, for instance, my my brother, uh, my loyalty to my spouse, etc. There's also loyalty to to the groups that we're a part of. It might be like a religious group or some sort of academic group, and then even um, loyalty to one's organization. And so the the context in which one finds themselves is really important for whether or not loyalty will lead to a good outcome or a bad outcome. Like I mentioned, loyalty has a set of obligations that obligates people to act on behalf of their objects of loyalty. And so you can imagine an instance in which someone to whom you are loyal, maybe it's a close friend, has Mm -hmm. done something unethical. Um, has done some sort of wrongdoing, for instance, in their organization, um, there's a lot of work suggesting that people are actually um, going to support that individual who has done some wrongdoing when they're loyal to that wrongdoer. Mm. And so in these instances where, where someone has done something wrong that we're, when we're loyal to them, Typically, we tend to actually come to their, come to their aid and support them. Um, so there's a lot of work suggesting that we won't turn them in to um, the authorities when they've done something wrong. We actually view their immoral behavior much more leniently than we would a stranger who committed the exact same wrongdoing and so on. This stinks of fundamental attribution error here. Where we are, we are essentially
0: biased, um, and maybe you can actually explain fundamental attribution error more clearly because I feel like I have a very basic understanding, but I believe it has to do with biases that we have towards ourselves and the actions that we take as opposed to comparing those to the actions that others take. Even if they're the same action, we judge our doing of them as being different, qualitatively different.
1: Yeah, yeah. So fundamental attributionary. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So that right suggests that we'll tend to view our own actions um, as the result of external influences and other people's as the, as the result of internal influences. I think in, in the context of trying to understand why people will act on behalf of their loyal ties and, and do things like support them even though they've engaged in wrongdoing and, and, for instance, cover up their wrongdoing. I think what's what's maybe perhaps a, a better way of thinking about it is instead of the fundamental attribution here, I would think of it in terms of a cognitive dissonance reduction technique. So why cognitive dissonance? Well, when we are loyal to someone and there are these, they, like I mentioned, there are these obligations we have to them, right? We treat them with partiality. We treat them in a way it's different from everyone else. Sure. When they've done something wrong, there's this cognitive dissonance that we have. On one hand, we're extremely loyal to this person and we're supposed to protect them and uphold them. And on the other hand, they've done something wrong. And especially if we think that that thing was wrong, you know, there's a sort of tension between our own moral code and, and our obligation to be loyal to someone and I think what happens in many of these cases is that people will act to reduce the dissonance and support the person to whom they are loyal. So it sounds like there is
0: this kind of hierarchy where loyalty supersedes morality. Do we see this across all domains? Is this maybe something that we only see in the workplace, which is the, one of the contexts that you study very closely? What's the interaction here between loyalty and morality? Do we always see one winning over the other?
1: Yes, that's an interesting point. So I think that the work in this space, that there's a lot more to be done. But like I mentioned earlier, loyalty has long been considered a really important part of morality and what it means to be a moral person. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, yes, to what you're saying, there are times where loyalty indeed gets people to act in ways that are not necessarily moral, which might be, for instance, covering up the wrongdoing of someone to whom you are really loyal. But I think, in general, from the research that that has been done in this in this regard, people are, are going to be more likely to support their loyalty, uh, irrespective of, of the context in which in which they find themselves. So it could be the workplace, it could just be everyday life. You learn about some sort of wrongdoing, some sort of theft um, that that your loyalty engaged in, what have you. I, I think that we're gonna we're bound to see some pretty similar things across across contexts where people are just more likely to support um, their their loyalty. I feel like I have to address the
0: distinction between very high-stakes moral judgments and very low-stakes moral events. So when we're in the workplace, I'm imagining that the, the repercussions, of the consequences of maybe breaching morality in a workplace can only get to such a high level, barring murder in the workplace. But in the, in the grand scheme of like human life, Morality seems to extend so far in terms of making moral judgments of action seems to extend so so far beyond the potential for consequences in the workplace. Does that make sense? Yeah. So yeah. do you feel that you're really focused on more low stakes moral questions or do you also address very high level ones as
1: well? Sure. Yeah. So in the workplace, right, I think that there can be instances of what you're saying are low stakes moral cases as well as high stakes moral cases. So for instance, something that I might consider more of a high stakes moral case that occurs in the workplace might be things having to do with sexual assault and abuse um, sure. that we hear about so frequently. And that's been in the, in the news um, in, the, in the last few years uh, of all these horrific instances in which, especially women, are, are um, fall to prey to some sort of sexual assault um, or even just sexual harassment. And so I think there there is a, a, an example of some sort of high stakes moral case. Um, and a low stakes example might be some form of theft. You know, you might have a job to do some, for instance, maybe you're a software engineer and you have some sort of job to do and you perhaps maybe steal someone else's code to, to produce the job that you need or mm-hmm. maybe even just like steal company equipment um, so on. So those might be considered more low stakes moral cases. So I, I definitely think that in the workplace, there are both examples of low stakes and high stakes okay. moral cases. And I think loyalty will operate to protect people who engage in either low stakes or high stakes moral cases. So, so there are many different examples of how people come to the aid of their loyal ties. So for instance, you mentioned murder as a high stakes moral case. So you might imagine that someone might not be willing to you know, support their loyal tie who's committed murder. And they might not be as willing to just refuse to turn them in. They might That might be a breaking point where they have to go against their loyalty-based obligation to support their loyalty when they've engaged in something so horrific. Mm-hmm. However, there there's still other work that shows that there are different ways in which loyalty might operate. So it might not be supporting that individual, but you might not view the behavior as leniently. You might start to look for reasons or justifications for, for the high-stakes moral case and say okay like i can't support them but look it's not as bad as some people are making it seem and that's just wow. another example i think of of where loyalty might operate to again in some ways fulfill that loyalty based obligation even cases in which a has done some committed some sort of high stakes moral moral injustice it's weird to think of of how far reaching the implications of
0: cognitive dissonance can be you know i i've, I've spoken about cognitive dissonance in many different context on many interviews on abstract before but this is this is a a very serious implication of cognitive dissonance that we're actually willing to almost forgive someone who we're loyal to for potentially killing somebody because of that that's Mm -hmm. that's I, i think a little bit beyond what i was expecting the results of some of these studies to actually show that's crazy
1: Yeah. And I think just to just to add to that point, I think perhaps one of the reasons why why that occurs is because, again, like going back to going back to the beginning, loyalty is such an important part of of morality and what it means to be a moral person. So Hmm. it's like loyalty operates to provide some sort of moral justification for supporting a loyalty, even if they've done something so horrific. And so that's part of what I think is happening on one side of the cognitive dissonance equation.
0: Not just that, but of course, if you view yourself as someone who is a loyal person, someone who is a moral person, then both of these things tie into your identity, which is maybe even a more fundamental aspect of who you are than just a a series of traits that you have. So do we find that this breach in one's identity is the ultimate cause of these crazy allowances that we give to people who are loyal to? How does identity figure in here?
1: That's a great question. Um, empirically, I don't know if we know the answer to that. But what I will say is that in the case of loyalty, so one aspect of, of, the, of a model of identity is a relational identity, that we all have some sort of sense of relational identity, which is typically characterizes how we see ourselves with respect to, to other people. And so you, people to whom we are loyal in some context in which they need help our relational identity might be active in that case. And so absolutely, you could imagine that failing to support or thinking about even failing to support a loyal tie might be a breach of one's relational identity in some capacity, which might also be adding to the sort of dissonance that one feels when trying to decide whether or not to lend some form of support or view some form of action more leniently when the loyal tie has done something, committed some moral infraction.
0: I feel like these these concepts are so interconnected to so many things. I, I have all these words in my head, like metacognition and self-awareness and development. Like if we think, for example, just kind of narrow this in about how our moral compass evolves over time. From what I understand, when we're children, we have a very like self-centered way of viewing the world and morality. And then as we evolve as, as we grow older integrate into society form strong relationships have more responsibility we become more group oriented and there's this shift and so i guess this kind of fits into what you're talking about in terms of having loyal ties to people is part of shifting the self-centered mindset to a more group-oriented mindset and maybe this is where we get herd behavior herd mentality right the social aspect of humanity is a very important one. We are social creatures. And so just by virtue of interacting with people, we want to either please them or remain loyal to them or maintain those connections. And of course, turning someone in for a crime would be a direct cut of that tie. I don't know if there's necessarily a question there. I just, I'm, I'm fascinated by how interrelated all these concepts are in terms of, not just of... All the concepts I've just mentioned, but also what you're working on. So we haven't even touched on passion yet. <laughs> I'm curious to know how passion fits into this picture. So we have I, I do want to kind of go back and forth here between identity and passion, but we've got this loyalty foundation and this morality. Passion seems like this, this kind of wild card. How did you fit that into your research?
1: Yeah. So I think that the common thread connecting some of these things is, is identity, like you mentioned. So the way I understand passion and, and particularly the passions that people have is that something that you're passionate about certainly has some identity relevance. It's a part of how we understand who we are. Like I like I mentioned at the beginning, I'm, I'm really passionate about scuba diving. Um, mm-hmm. And so that to me, is in, in part of how I characterize myself as an individual. I, it's something that I really love. I see it as a part of who I am. And so similar to loyalty, in which our, our loyal ties are certainly a part of our identity, have like relational identity and our group, our collective identity for, for a group-based loyalty, organizational loyalty, and so on. Similarly, on the passion side, I think that people's passions form parts aspects of their identity and are part of how they characterize who, who they are as a person. And so that's kind of how I see the the, the connection between the two. However, I will say that as of right now, a lot of the research that I'm doing on loyalty and on passion for work is pretty isolated from one another. So the questions I ask about loyalty are quite specific to loyalty, and the questions I ask about passion and passion for work are specific to passion and passion for work. and i haven't I haven't yet done done anything to bridge those two topics. they're They're isolated from each other in my research area as 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 of right now. Interesting.
0: Is that because you believe that passion and loyalty are like fundamentally different and unrelated? Or do you actually think that passion can interfere with loyalty or that these two values interact in like mutually influential ways?
1: Yeah. So it really just comes down to the sorts of questions I find interesting in each category at the moment. And that's what's kind of separating them. I definitely can see some overlap and a lot of relatability between the two. But right now, the questions that I've been asking and conducting research on render them uh, separate topics.
0: Mm hmm. I feel like it's it can get really heavy studying these huge topics. First of all, very obviously studying things like morality, loyalty, these, these feel like very broad topics that require a lot of depth. I know in a PhD, you really got to get hyper-focused, but I'm, I'm impressed at how you're able to kind of dance around all these different things and touch on so many different kinds of topics. It, it is... It does seem unusual, as opposed to the deep dive a lot of people take in their dissertation. Yeah, That's interesting.
1: Yeah, thank you. I mean, I find them both just really interesting, and it kind of gives me the sort of motivation and ability to create the time that I need to study both at the level that I need to study them, and I really love it. Do you feel like your personal life experience has
0: led you to enter this field, or that, it, or does it inform your research at this point?
1: Yeah, I think in I think in some ways it does, and if not my own personal experience, at least the things that I observe, read about, and think about on a regular basis, um, certainly has has impacted how I think about these topics as well as the questions that I ask and, and then conduct research on. What have you been thinking about lately? Um, What's s- occupying your mind? Well, so one thing that I've become pretty interested in is, is so I, I mentioned um, at the beginning that I'm passionate about scuba diving and, and fitness, and I do that intentionally because I've become really interested in people's non-work passions. So in the passion literature, a lot of what we focus on, especially in organizational behavior and management, is passion for work. So how, how can you take something you're passionate about and make a career out of it? It's pretty much ubiquitous career advice in, in, in the West to pursue your passion, to find and, and then later pursue your passion. I think a lot of people also uh, end up getting the
0: shivers when they hear that because they are definitely not pursuing their passion and they might feel like they've made a mistake. So yeah. I hope what you're about to tell me is that all hope is not lost.
1: Yeah, no, I, I definitely don't think all hope is lost. I, I think that people can be just as well off. So so we do talk about pursuing your passion for a career as just like the ultimate thing to do. You'll be extremely well off for doing so. You know, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life is a common, common adage. Mm-hmm. But I, I, importantly, I don't think that your passion has to be something you pursue as a career. You could be extremely passionate about certain things that you decide to not pursue as a career, right? So I'm really passionate about scuba diving, but I have zero interest in pursuing that as a career. I just really love it. And so even though I'm also passionate for my work, I am very passionate about my research. I think people can, can benefit quite quite significantly from doing something outside of work that they're really passionate about and, and really creating this sort of environment for them to pursue something they're passionate about outside of the work domain, especially for people who are not pursuing their passion for work or actually can't pursue their passion for work. Do you think, it just as this very generally, the average person, do you think they
0: would benefit more from working in an environment that they don't really enjoy working in and having passionate hobbies or doing some kind of work that is passionate, but they don't have any time to actually pursue any hobbies?
1: Yeah, so I think both of those scenarios are suboptimal. So I think when <laughs> okay. you put yourself into a work environment that you that you don't enjoy, I think you're going to have a lot of a lot of challenges. And it's certainly important to pursue your passion outside of work in that instance. But I definitely think that when you go to work every day and you you, you actually don't enjoy it, you don't like the people you're around, you don't like the the work that you do, etc., then I think I think that's that's cause for caution. And and if you can pivot out of that role, I think that would be an important thing to start thinking about doing. And then similarly, in the case of being in a role where you're really passionate for work but you're working all the time, I think I think that that can that can be suboptimal for people. and if people were to work a little bit less and maybe focus on a few things outside of work that they really like, whether it's something they're really passionate about or not, but even just spending time with family and friends and so on, and working a little bit less, I think would make people certainly better off. So I see both of the I see both of those examples as suboptimal ways to to pursue one's career. But I think, I think no matter the situation, someone finds themselves in one in which they really enjoy what they do, or don't really enjoy what they do, and are maybe trying to figure out what it is that they want to do. I think having some sort of pursuing some sort of passion outside of outside of their work, finding even if they don't know, and, and pursuing some sort of passion outside of work, um, could really benefit them in, in either case. To bring us back to loyalty for a second, I just am I'm, I'm really curious. Who do you think you're most loyal to on the planet right now, and who do you think is most lo- loyal to you? Wow. That is an extremely hard question. Um, <laughs> that's why we're here. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, probably family members. So, I think immediate family members. I, I, mm-hmm. I that makes sense to me. And who's most loyal to me? Probably immediate family members. Honestly, like my mom's dog. <laughs> family mean, man. I'm guessing like dogs yeah. show a great sense of loyalty with with little, um, little interference. So, I don't know. That that's that's probably what I would say. Dogs are lucky, right? Because they never have that cognitive dissonance. Right. Right. <laughs> they just—they just
0: have the loyalty. You know, right. there's no dogs who are out there murdering each other. Uh, no. Or no. I guess there are, but definitely not a domesticated house dog. Who right. Doesn't get to live that life, man. It's—I guess it is a dog's life. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, I, I want to ask you about about quitting. Quitting is a very big decision for a lot of people, especially when they're in a situation like one of the two we just outlined where they're uh, doing some kind of work that occupies all of their time. They love it, but it's detracting from other aspects of their life. Or they don't love what they're doing at all and it's essentially just a huge burden. But very often, I think the number one reason for staying in a job is the financial input you get from that. How do people come to make the decision to quit? How does that impact things like their identity? And how would you, this is a lot of questions, how would you help someone come to terms with quitting or not?
1: Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. Um, there
0: we could do that one at a time. I'm very yeah, excited. So,
1: <laughs> it's an exciting topic, so I understand. I think you're right to note the identity piece. So when someone is thinking about quitting, and maybe it's something, especially when it's something that they're really passionate about, um, there are many reasons for why they might be debating whether or not they want to quit their current position, but when they're really passionate about what they're what they're doing – since passion has this identity relevance to it, it is as though you're thinking about potentially losing a sense of yourself. You might think that you're, you who you are as a person is going to change quite drastically because you are quitting on something that you are passionate about. And that's, that's a fair concern. When it comes to empowering people to think about quitting and giving up, one thing that I've been finding in, in my research is that people tend to hold these really negative views of how they think others will view them for giving up. Or quitting um, on something that they're really passionate about, they think, for instance, that they'll be seen as less, as a less moral person, which is relevant because we tend to moralize goal pursuit and we moralize perseverance in the face of many obstacles. It's sort of virtuous to keep to persist um, despite whatever mm-hmm. obstacles come your way, and so people think for they'll sure. be seen as less moral when they when they give up, and they also think and this, they also think that they'll be seen as far less competent when when they think they're going to quit. And so I think these beliefs about how others are going to view you for quitting especially on something you're passionate about are really corrosive and can hold people back because I think there are many there are lots of different reasons and many good reasons for for why someone should potentially quit on something they're passionate about. But I think that these negative beliefs that, the, that people hold about how others view them for giving up or quitting on their passion really hold people back from doing that. And so right now I'm trying to figure out ways to help reduce those negative beliefs and empower people to, to quit despite the presence of these beliefs that they hold. In large part, and the reasoning for this, my, the, the reason why I'm so fired up about getting people to stop believing these things is because what I've been finding in my work is that people don't judge people or think that they're so less moral and so less competent for quitting. Okay. So I consistently find that when 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 people are asked to think, how how do you think others are going to view you for quitting? Like, they always report, you know, I'm going to be seen as far less moral, far less competent. And then when I ask other people like to evaluate others who are quitting on something they're passionate about, they don't see them as less moral and less competent. They see them as quite huh. moral and quite competent. Um, and I think that that's important, and, and it tells us it, it, it's just, it lends some motivation to me to figure out a way to, to intervene to help reduce these negative beliefs that people have about how others view them to try and empower them to, to quit when they have a good reason for doing so.
0: Yeah, so that explains why you call them negative beliefs as opposed to negative realities. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> it's not actually happening,
1: <laughs> right? Which and there's a great justification for it. Like You can imagine, like I'm sitting here thinking, okay, what if I quit my PhD tomorrow? Right? Like I start yeah. thinking immediately about, like I'm going to be, looked, I'm going to be seen as just like incompetent. Like I can't do it. I can't finish it. I'm going to be seen as less moral. I'm just I just feel like there are people are going to view me really negatively, mm-hmm. and I think that that's a totally fair thing to believe it's it's a fair intuition that a lot of us hold but it's wrong and um, importantly it's wrong and and i want to try and empower people to do away with those negative beliefs so that they can quit um, when the time is right and find a different a different role do you ever think about quitting your phd no no i haven't thought about it yet good answer your supervisor's
0: (laughs) listening right right (laughs) uh it's, it's very interesting. I I, I did quit my, my first master's degree. I'm currently on another one, but I quit the first one. And it was, it was a tough decision that I knew was the right one. But I had to speak to about half a dozen people and feel their opinions before I was, I was actually confident in making my own. And I, I think part of that speaks to the fact that I was being a lot more hard on myself in terms of the repercussions socially and in terms of my identity, whereas everybody else was so supportive. I had people saying, mm. I actually, I had certain people say, I'm in a similar position and I am jealous that you're that you've even gotten to the point of calling people to ask about this. Mm-hmm. You know? There were people in academia who were struggling and were unable to even start asking the question and, and, and consider that as a possibility. So sometime I guess maybe that can just be something for the for, for you, for the listeners. If you want to quit, this might be an opportunity for you to actually inspire other people to make a leap in their own life. Yeah. And so that could be that could be a positive thing. I just have one last question for you, which is you are doing research like we've said multiple times that have really potentially huge impacts on people's lives. Not all graduate research has that. So I'm asking you, can you crystallize so far from what you've studied from what you've read? What is the single most poignant, helpful piece of advice you could give to any individual that can help them improve their lives based on your research?
1: Based on my own research, yeah. So I I think I would lean into the the passion side to answer this question, though. I think there are important implications on the loyalty side. But from an individual perspective, I think it's really important to take care of yourself and to be the best version of yourself, I think, requires you to think about and to experiment with your own self to see what works for you. For some people, when they're passionate for what they do, they tend to work a lot and they might even, that can even lead to overwork and it can lead to burnout. And that's really dangerous. So I really want people to pursue things that they really love and that really get them fired up at something that they get up in the morning, they think about, they really love to do, whether it's something they're doing for their work or something outside of work. And I think that's really important. So I would encourage people to think about. What they're passionate about, what they're interested in, and if that starts to deviate from where they are at work. And maybe that's a good reason to pause and think about uh, a career change, a role change, etc. cetera. Or maybe it's just a reason to pause and figure out how you can incorporate more of, of those interests into your daily or weekly life outside of work. And I, and I really think that that would make people a lot better off. I have. Have some data suggesting that people are just, they perform better, they're better off, they're, their mental health is better, et cetera, when they're doing something they're passionate, even if it's outside of work. But like I mentioned, I think pursuing your passions can come with a risk where it can get you to do things without really realizing it, like working, you know, 15 hours in a day and not realizing that you've been working for, for so long, which which will take a toll on one's body. And so figuring out how to balance one's passions with one's own well-being, mental and physically speaking, I think is really, really important. Awesome. Thank you very much for
0: sharing that. I actually just just had an interview. I think this is going to be the episode coming up before this one. And we spoke about this concept of deferral momentum. And one of the things we spoke about was that people who actually put off decisions, like the decision to quit, for example, we didn't speak about that then, but I'm just tying it in now. People who, who tend to defer things end up becoming confident in their ability to continue to defer things, and it actually just propagates. Hmm. And so having the thought about quitting and then pushing the entire decision aside and then continually doing that is just going to be get more deferral. And so sometimes the best thing to do is exactly what you're saying. Sit down, really reflect on yourself, use those metacognitive human abilities that were endowed to you over billions of years of evolution and figure it out. So thank you so much, Zach. This was such an interesting, engaging, enjoyable conversation. I really appreciate your time and your knowledge. So thank you for sharing that with me today.
1: Thanks, Jeremy. It's been fun.
0: Have an awesome day. You too. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.